Listener Production. Two months ago, Hannah Divney wrote a tweet and pressed enter, sending it off into the world. Hours later, her phone lit up. It was friends and family and colleagues and everyone she had ever met trying to get in touch with her. That tweet had gone viral, so much so that it caught the attention of Lizzo. Yes, the Lizzo. The fact that I don't even need to say a second name, just Lizzo, perhaps tells you how far and wide Hannah's words were read. But here's the thing, Hannah wasn't raving about Lizzo's music or her new album. She had a bone to pick. Hannah Divney is a writer and disability and women's rights advocate. She has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair to get around. Hannah joined me to unpack exactly what happened in that story, as well as everything from pop stars to cartoons to the experience of life from a different vantage point to most. Welcome to The Weekend Briefing. My name is Jamila Rizvi. Next, Bron is jumping into the chair and we will be bringing you The Weekend List where we talk about what to eat, watch, do and listen to this weekend. But first, here's my conversation with Hannah. Hannah Divney, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. I am so delighted to have you. Hi, Jam. Thanks for having me. Now, normally when I do these kind of interviews, I stick to my script in that I like to go back and make people tell me about what they were like as a kid to begin with. But you and I, we are not doing that. We're going to come back to that stuff later. Okay. Because you have been in the news the last couple of months and I have to start there. I need to let you tell the story or I'm going to get overexcited. Tell me about what happened to you and what you thought about when the extraordinary musical artist Lizzo put out a new song just about six to eight weeks ago now. Yeah. So basically, I am a huge fan of Lizzo. I love her music. I think she's created some of my favourite pop songs of the last couple of years. And she occupies really important intersectional space. So it's really nice to obviously see someone having that sort of success who doesn't look like everybody else. And yeah, basically about six weeks ago, give or take, she released a new song called Girls off her second album. Uh, I hadn't heard the song, but jumped on Twitter and saw a bunch of my friends who were also disability advocates expressing that they felt a little bit uncomfortable about one of the lyrics. So I went and listened to the song, found the lyric they were talking about, and decided that I better say something about it. Basically, Lizzo had unintentionally used an ableist slur, which was directly connected to my disability of cerebral palsy. She used a word that is short for spastic, which in the context of cerebral palsy basically means like an unending painful tightness that is kind of constantly present, doesn't have to be triggered by anything specific, and unfortunately tends to flare up in the colder months. So yeah, I tweeted about that, didn't think anything of it. I tweet all the time and nothing like that generally happens. And then my phone started buzzing so much, I had to turn the sound off and I was like, hmm, that's unusual. But it was probably more when I started getting the first troll-like response, I would say, that I went, oh, this is turning into something a bit bigger than I intended. Because I think for me, I always kind of try and take trolls as a sort of twisted compliment because you're 
moving outside the echo chamber, that's always going to be like, Hannah, you're doing a great job, which is a lovely place to be for like my friends and family. But that's how you know you're making real change if you're having people disagree with you. And basically, yeah, I started going viral. And I want to pause for a moment because everyone uses the word viral nowadays, right? And they often use it when something absolutely has not gone viral. And people are like, oh, yeah, I got 200 retweets. I went viral. No, no, you didn't, mate. You didn't. Folks, Hannah actually went viral. Okay, back to you. Thank you. Um, And basically it started getting to the point where I was like, hmm, there is a chance, a small chance that someone connected to Lizzo might see this and like, oh, God, what happens when that happens? Because to be honest, I mean, normally if people bring something to the attention of celebrities, it's not usually met with grace. It's usually met with people being like, that's not what I meant. This is, this is what I meant. Like I'm going to deny that I've done anything wrong or I'm going to double down or I'm going to put it back on the marginalized community that it's coming from. So I was really worried, even though I trust Lizzo and part of the reason I felt comfortable calling her out is because she seems so approachable and intersectional. I just really wasn't sure what was going to happen. And then a few days later, everyone started tagging me on Instagram yelling in my comments like, she's changing it. You need to go and read the statement she put out on Instagram. And it was probably the most impressive kind of statement of allyship that I've seen from a celebrity. What made it impressive? Oh, just that she skipped past all the like angry stuff, I think, and went straight to, oh, well, okay, that's not what I meant. But um, thank you for telling me. Like, I'm really glad you taught me that and like obviously now I'm going to change it because I get it so she did it without fuss and she did it without expecting praise which I think is also really important because sometimes people can do things or be performative in their allyship which kind of doesn't work out um so that was a really nice response and then obviously like the world's media came and found me which was An interesting experience. I don't think I will ever get over the shock of having an email from an actual journalist who works for the New York Times in my inbox. That was very strange. Uh, But then uh, it kind of got a bit more complicated because roughly six weeks later, give or take, uh, Beyonce, who was a level of famous it is almost impossible to comprehend, um, released a song with the same the same word in it. And that was a really frustrating point because the Lizzo news was not something that was done quietly. It was everywhere. Yeah. And I couldn't really understand how someone in the many roles in Beyonce's team had it kind of flagged that like, hey, if we release this song as it currently stands, we're probably going to run into the same issue as Lizzo, so maybe we should just take it out preemptively. I remember when I saw that headline the first time, my reaction was, oh, no. I actually thought someone had been offensive in some other way. I I thought someone had mixed up two different black women performers and that they meant Lizzo, not Beyonce. Yeah. Like I thought it was an error in a headline. Me too. 
You're right. Yes, it's Beyonce who famously doesn't spend a lot of time in the media or social media consuming content. But this is someone with a massive team. It's not like the calling out of Lizzo and her response was small. It was covered by media all over the world. Yeah. And like her statement was put on her personal Instagram. She made a big, she made it very clear and very public that she was re-releasing the song. Like this didn't come through her people. It wasn't really a statement that could be missed or misconstrued. So yeah, the realisation that, well, if Beyonce has gone and used the same word, I probably should call her out. You have to say something again. call her out too is like, oh my God. Because Beyonce, as we know, like is one of the most famous people in the world. Pretty much every time she breathes, the world writes a think piece about it. And she also has one of the most passionate fan bases in the world. So I knew that there would be a lot of people who weren't happy with me for doing that. And there were a lot of people who felt that because I am a white woman and Beyonce and Lizzo happen to be African-American women, um, that there was an element of racism to my calling them out. That seemed to be a common thread among a lot of my trolls. And basically I didn't think for a second that Beyonce would respond or change the lyric just because she cultivates such an enigmatic, like unapproachable, mysterious, like I, I only ever come out on my terms kind of public persona. Um, but then to wake up a couple of days later and have my phone ringing off the hook because, oh my God, Beyonce has changed the lyric, uh, was intense. Did you feel powerful? Like, what else are you going to change? The Australian Constitution, that'd be good. There'd be a number of things I'd do to it, Jen, if I was given that power. Um, But yeah, it it did feel rather strange. Someone called me like the most powerful person in pop culture today and I was like, wait, no. I'm like, I'm just a consumer of pop culture. I'm not actually meant to be the pop culture. That's... That's a bit much. Firstly, what an achievement, right? It's not It's not easy to call someone out that you admire. Yeah, it doesn't feel great. Yeah, you know, it's like um, calling out a friend where you don't, yeah. you don't want to bring that person down. No. No, but the fact that you did it with such respect and such grace and it didn't have to be, I would like this person cancelled. Yeah. But rather, I really admire you. Do you think you could make this change so that I can keep admiring you and so that others can as well? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it is a testament, you know, to the way that you engage, that the response of these two mega famous women was, you know, met with similar grace. Thank you. I, I really, really appreciate that. When you think back to growing up and when you were a kid, told you I was going there, mm-hmm. how did you feel seen by pop culture? Did you feel seen? Not just by music, but more generally? Absolutely not. Yeah. It was a blank space. This sort of negative context, right? Yeah. We're talking about a slur being used and needing to be removed, but I suppose I'm talking about the positive action. You wouldn't have seen yourself, for instance, when you were growing up in cartoons or in pop music. No, I did not. And Basically, what happens when you don't see yourself in the movies, TV, books, toys available on shelves, 
basically anywhere, is it sort of tears like this giant hole of invisibility inside you. And I went through a phase where as a kid, I would stare at my reflection in the mirror, afraid that if I, that if I looked away, I'd disappear. Wow. Because I literally didn't feel seen. Yeah. And growing up, there were two kind of main narratives of disability that circulated in my life. And one was Paralympic achievement and success, which only popped up every four years anyway. And back then, um, we didn't see a lot of coverage of the Paralympics. We see a lot more now. It's improved. Um, or the other one was like those road safety ads where someone has been injured because they were drink driving or someone is terribly sad because their life is now over because they're in a wheelchair. Yeah, it's used a, a, as a warning, disability yeah. as a warning. You yeah. don't want to turn out like this, right? No. And for me, like I, cerebral palsy is something that you are born with and it's something I will have for the rest of my life. Like internalizing the message that people thought my life should be over before it had begun as a little kid was really confusing. Um, and probably because Australia places so much value on sport um, as a culture, the amount of times I was asked, hey, what's your Paralympic sport going to be? Or some variation of that question is probably too many to count. And for me, I, I, I would always push back and go, well, hold on, I have two younger sisters who happen to be able-bodied. You're not assuming that they're going to the Olympics. You're assuming that the world is full of possibilities for them. So why is it that Paralympic success, which is, number one, not for everybody, not something that everybody's interested in, and also, like, not every disabled person has the skills to be a Paralympian because... Contrary to popular belief, sometimes, I think people forget that being a Paralympian actually takes incredible skill and incredible, like, strength and training. Yes. Like, I was talking to Dylan Alcott the other day and the amount of work that he had to put in as a tennis player to get where he, where he got. Yeah. And obviously, like, he got to the very, very top, the highest peak you can possibly go in in winning the Golden Slam and doing all of that, um, it's insane. And it's definitely not valued in the same way that it is for able-bodied people. Yeah. I think. So, yeah, those were the two narratives that I grew up with. And then eventually my brain went, well, if no one else is going to do it, I guess I'll just have to create the third one. Did your family or the people around you, teachers, whoever it might have been, make space for you to think outside the two options scenario? Yeah. My parents were always really good about um, showing me what was possible. I do remember them having to sit me down, though, at one stage and saying, look, you're probably not going to win like the 100 meter sprint at the Olympics, but that's okay because we aren't either. So like, We'll just focus on the things you can do and try and show you that, like, this is how you build a life. And I was saying to someone the other day, when I was a little kid, if someone had come up to me and asked me, 
whether I didn't want to be disabled, my answer would have been yes, straight away. But as I got older and realized like all of the people I've met because of my disability, all of the things I've got to do because of my disability, all of the things I'm now good at because I wasn't able to run around or go to soccer and ballet like other kids, you kind of realize that you wouldn't change that because it would be a domino effect of changing pretty much everything about me. I'm uh, <laughs> having a moment of realization, folks, as as Hannah teaches so beautifully through through her own story. Hannah, you and I are both disabled people, but we have very different experiences of being disabled. I became disabled at 31. So I lived a good third of a lifetime, if you're lucky, as a non-disabled person first. Yes. And so I've spent the last few years uh, adjusting, adjusting to life as a disabled person. And I think most of that time I have been raging against it. And there is still an element of raging against it. There's still an element of rage for me too. But now, five years on, how old am I? Five years on. (laughs) Yeah, don't age yourself too fast, Jem. I don't want to undo it anymore because there's too much good stuff that's happened as well that's, that's intertwined. Yeah. The idea of undoing my disabilities would take away, as you say, it's a domino effect. It would take away too many things that I think have made me a better person. Mm. And it means that I've also met incredible people, just as you said. And the way you put it is a really beautiful way to express that complex feeling, which I suspect a lot of able-bodied people can't necessarily understand. Able-bodied people think, well, why wouldn't you want to get rid of your disability? But it's it's not that simple. Yeah. And also like the idea that like human beings are only are only valuable if their body works completely normally or if their skin is white or if they are heterosexual or if they're cisgender or like it's all just there there are so many different versions of the well why wouldn't you want to get rid of that question and I think um the world would be so boring and terribly terribly damaged if we were all the same I mean don't get me wrong there are still epic pockets of terrible damage in the world as it stands right now but I think we are only ever better for people being different. One of the things I found when I first got sick and then as a result of a bunch of surgeries where I developed a number of disabilities Mm -hmm. was that I went looking for role models. Mm -hmm. Maybe not role models. I went looking for stories. Yeah. Or in your words, I suppose I went looking for representation. I went looking for other people who'd gone through what I had. And that meant looking to celebrities. It meant looking to people in the media. It meant looking at pop culture, stories, TV shows. As an adult, I found it really hard because I couldn't find anyone. And so I never got that sense of, well, there's a version of what my life could be now. Uh And it was really hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that you went through that as a kid and you would have just been so desperate for those stories. So Hannah, tell me about your petition to Disney to create a Disney princess who is disabled. Well, basically that is my solution to all those childhood years of 
searching because it's very much my view that if you start representation at the childhood level, not only are you showing all the disabled kids out there what's possible, but you're also showing the able-bodied kids and their parents who will be watching that disability is not something to be afraid of. It's not something to turn away from. It's not something to walk past quickly and talk about in hushed hushed whispers. Like, I think, obviously, an animated character isn't going to solve the problems that people with disabilities face, but I think having that disability start there and then watching as those kids grow into adults that can then be allies in potentially more meaningful ways will only ever be a good thing. So for me, um, I started thinking seriously about the idea in 2015. I went to see the Pixar film Inside Out, which, if you haven't seen it, is a beautifully nuanced and really quite complex for a children's film, like, take on mental health and mental illness. Yeah, it is. It is. I, and I remember sitting there thinking, wow, if they managed to convince Disney that, like, this was going to be a good story to invest in, maybe it's not too far off the mark to assume that they'd create a disabled character. So I wrote them a letter, like I physically mailed it to Burbank, California, uh, and it got picked up on online at, and I ended up getting a job in the media because of it at like age 15, which is ridiculous. Um, but then basically that sort of fell to the wayside a bit because obviously I had to finish high school, start uni. Um, and at that stage, that was a really, really tough time to me. I found it really difficult to make friends at school because it felt like the goalposts of what people around me were doing were always moving. And by the time I caught up, they were already on to the next thing so for me for instance like I probably won't ever be able to drive a car because even though you could modify a car so that everything people would normally do with their legs I could do with my arms part of my disability is that I have a really hard time processing things spatially so it's probably not safe for me to be on the road because you know objects are closer than they appear than they appear it's, pro it's probably better for everybody if I'm not in control of a car. Um, or even things like relationships and people assuming that the only person who might want to be in a relationship with me is a fellow disabled person, which is... It's, it's crap. Yeah. It is, it is crap. I finished high school. I started uni. I was struggling to keep my own head above water. It was taking all of my energy to sort of advocate for myself, which if anyone else is in that position, is an entirely valid place to be. Um, but for me, the decision to become a disability advocate came from the idea that I am very privileged to quite literally have a voice because when I was initially diagnosed with cerebral palsy, the worst case scenario that they gave my parents, which they have to give you in order to avoid like lit litigation and stuff down the track was that it would never walk, talk or feed myself, um, which would have put me in a very different 
situation and led to a very different life. Um, so I, yeah, I just started becoming a disability advocate. Uh, I wrote an article for the ABC that got a fair bit of attention. And then the world was kind of having conversations about representation in popular culture off the back of that film that Sia did called Music, um, which was really harmful and like poorly handled towards the autistic community. And so I sort of saw the window of opportunity for it to come up again and created the petition. And now almost two years later, we have 60,000 signatures. We have support from all sorts of incredible people like Jamila Jamil, Reese Witherspoon, um, Mark Hamill, Blake Lively. It's really, really important to me that hopefully the film gets made eventually. And I think Disney have actually recently released a statement. They gave it to the Australian Women's Weekly when I was profiled in there recently, which is such a weird sentence. Oh, my God. Um, and said that they knew about my campaign and that they were committed to uh, representing stories that were different. So I take that as a step in the right direction. And I'm also hoping... It means that my disabled Disney princess named Stella. Oh, now you're going to make me cry. No, no, keep going. Keep going. Yes, I I thought I might, but I figured I'd tell you because I I know how important it is to you. We should clarify for those who are listening that um, Stella Young was an incredible an incredible writer and author and comedian and also a disability advocate and activist and she was a very good friend of mine and she died. She died about seven and a half years ago now. So it means a lot. Yeah. What you've just said. She, she meant a lot to a lot of people. So she was, she was the first disabled person I ever saw who wasn't a Paralympian where I went, oh, I want to do that. So, yeah, if the film ever gets made, it's my hope that the princess's name will be Stella. Hannah, I am so grumpy that the weekend briefing is only 20 minutes long because we've gone very much over time. I want to thank you for sharing so much of your own life as well as the work that you're doing with us today. You're welcome. And to all of you who are listening right now, there are more than 60,000 listeners to the weekend briefing and the briefing. So if you all went and signed the petition... We could double those numbers. Uh, We're going to include a link in the show notes and it would make me very, very happy if you all went and signed. Hannah, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. That's it for my conversation with Hannah Divney. It was such a pleasure to have her. Please make sure you stay tuned in the show notes and look at that petition that she mentioned. You can also follow her on all the social medias. Don't go away. Bronze coming up next with the weekend list. It's recommendations time. Bron is here. She's more interesting than me, which means she's got more interesting things for you to do this weekend. 
Now you have to deliver, Bron. Oh, you're setting me up to fail here, Jen. <laughs> um, my first one is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. The last season just dropped on Netflix a few weeks ago. Um, it's such a great comedy series. All eight seasons are strong. They're not afraid to dive into more serious issues as well, and it's all done really funny. The cast is amazing. Um, if you haven't managed to binge it already, it's definitely worth the watch. And, yeah, all, all seasons are out now, so you may as well dig in and... Yeah, they're all really strong. The cast, unbelievable. This is Philip Davidson. What do we have on him? Clear motive, clear means, and a non-existent alibi, but the DA won't bring a charge because he says it's all circumstantial. If we want to bring this guy down, we have to get him to confess right here, right now. Mm, an interrogation with a ticking clock and everything on the line? I better call Kevin and tell him I won't be attending the opera. There's someone else I'd rather hear sing. Oh, damn! Uh, that is a very good recommendation. Thank you. Especially because certainly here in Melbourne, we got given a glimpse, a glimpse of spring, and then it got taken away from us very quickly. Uh, though, for folks in Melbourne, I've got a recommendation for you. This uh, weekend, starting in fact on Thursday, running right through till Sunday, is the Melbourne Writers Festival. Tickets are on sale now, and it is an incredible lineup. For anyone who is a Succession fan, uh, the actor Brian Cox, who is the one who plays media mogul Logan Roy, he is in conversation with Sally Warhaft. There is a massive debate that is curated by Chelsea Wotago, uh, where there are going to be two teams who comprise some very sharp and funny minds who are going to go head to head, arguing the case for and against being hopeful anymore, which if you're anything like me and have been feeling a bit flat lately, I think it's quite fun to play around with that a little bit. Uh, the opening night program looks unbelievable, as does the closing night program. I'm not going to talk about opening night because that's passed by the time you're listening. But what lies ahead of you, folks, is that one of Australia's finest writers, Robert Desai, is going to be speaking uh, for closing night. He has recently accepted an Australia Council Award for a lifetime achievement in literature. He has really Really diverse interests and he's going to reflect on a lifetime of ambition and desire and aspiration. And I think for anyone, especially through the pandemic, who sort of had that sense of, I don't even know what I want to do anymore, coming and going and not being sure whether you feel ambitious or whether you just want to feel tired permanently and just stay at home. Um, I think a really good one to be quite contemplative and, and, and enjoy. So definitely check out uh, mwf.com.au and grab some tickets. My next one is a bit off center. This one is liquidless reed diffusers. What? What is this? It's so good. It makes the house smell so amazing. It's one of those reed diffusers, but instead of dipping them in oil, they just look so amazing around the house as just home decor, really. They're really low maintenance. You don't have to refill with oils or wax. You just set and forget. They look amazing and they make the house smell amazing. You cannot go wrong with these as a gift for somebody. If you just want to treat yourself to a nice little thing to have around the house, they are so good. I've got the Circa branded ones, but I'm sure you can get them from Glass House or Dusk or wherever you get your good smelling stuff. Good smelling <laughs> yes. stuff. Good smelling stuff. Um, I actually love that. I love indulging in some good smelling stuff. Folks, I bet those of you who enjoyed the conversation with Hannah Divney today, I'm going to give you a few suggestions of other incredible disabled Australians who you can follow on social media. I've grabbed their Instagram handles, but these excellent people are available 
available all over the place. Really recommend um, writer and book critic and teacher Astrid Edwards, who is at at underscore Astrid Edwards underscore. I also want to recommend Ellie Deshmelia, who is a wonderful um, disability advocate and was representing the ideas and views of a bunch of people with disabilities at the recent Jobs Summit in Canberra. She's at at E Deshmelia, which is D-E-S-M-A-R-C-H-E-L-I-E-R. You can follow the wonderful, the incredible Grand Slam winner and also Australian of the Year for 2022, Dylan Alcott, who's just got his name, at Dylan Alcott, and Eliza Hull, who's a wonderful musician and advocate. Also her name, at Eliza Hull. My other two recommendations are actually people who have been previous guests on The Weekend Briefing. You should check out Turia Pitt, at Turia Pitt and Tara Moss at Tara Moss Auth. You should also check out Dinesh Palipanya, who is also under his name. That is a whole big list, but you can like press pause, write them down and then go find them on Instagram. That's it for the weekend briefing today. Gosh, we've loved having your company. Thank you for being with us. I hope you've got a really glorious weekend planned. If However, you want to make sure that you can just hang out inside, listen to more episodes of The Weekend Briefing. Of course you should. I do it. Me and Brom, we do that all the time. Listen back to ourselves. The best way to do that is to find us in the listener app and to follow us there. If you're listening on another podcasting platform, then you can follow or subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. We will be back bright and early, first thing Monday morning, where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.